Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. This is my 399th show, so next week's the big 400. It's a lot of shows, isn't it? God. And we're broadcasting across the world in this, our ninth year. And we're broadcasting today from fabulous Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, the world capital of entertainment. And these days, it's the place where entertainment meets technology. So we're only one show away from 400 shows. And uh, next week, I think we've got something special, so that'll be um, interesting. I'll let everybody know with my newsletter during the week. If you don't get my newsletter, you should. Now, did you know that your medical data is worth three times more than your financial data? So it's much more important to hackers than knowing all your bank stuff. Banks and financial institutions have always been targeted by hackers. But the figures show that the healthcare organisations are increasingly getting hacked by data thieves. Healthcare data has become popular on the dark web because it's easily monetized, and unlike bank information, it's hard to change. Though bank accounts can be changed pretty quickly, health histories cannot, which makes personal health information up to three times more valuable than other types of personally identifiable information. So if somebody hacks your your bank, you go and put a stop on your credit cards and you change your bank account and they're screwed. Pretty much they can use what they've got. But with health, health sticks with you and uh, there's not much you can do about it. And since healthcare transactions go through several intermediaries like providers, insurers, Etc. It can take longer to detect healthcare fraud than financial fraud. On the dark web, doctor credentials are hot commodities that go for as much as five hundred dollars per record. While health insurance login information sells for measly three dollars twenty-five. And healthcare breaches are on the increase, with healthcare business in the U.S. reporting. 44 major breaches to the US government just in April. That's one and a half a day, and that's the worst month on record. The scale of these breaches is also worsening. A recent data breach at Quest Diagnostics impacted up to 11.9 million patients' records. That's a lot. It's a hell of a lot. Now, you've probably read today that uh, Facebook's in the process of finalising plans to launch its crypto in 2020, rolling out the digital currency in around a dozen countries by the first quarter of next year. And Facebook plans to begin testing for the crypto, which is called Global Coin, very good name, in the next few months. I'm staggered that it's available. I'm sure I'm really surprised somebody didn't have it before 
Facebook managed to get their hands on it. Facebook's considerable resources have enabled it to make significant headway on its crypto project already. It's registered a new fintech company called Libra Networks in Switzerland as part of its efforts to move into financial services and crypto. The company has also sought advice from regulators in the US and the UK. Facebook has also held talks with a number of financial services firms into including two crypto exchanges in an effort to provide users of its crypto with access to safe storage and enable them to convert the digital currency into other cryptos or fiat currencies. So, wow, just imagine with all the muscle that Facebook have got, how they can drive this crypto. Now, Facebook's recently recent privacy rose, rose, you know, they've been in all sorts of trouble about privacy, maybe a ro- major roadblock block that it needs to overcome because it does need to get, um, it'll probably need to get by early next year regulatory approval. And there's a hell of a lot of people in Washington, D.C. and in England particularly that feel that Facebook's about as big and as powerful as it should be allowed to get. Across the past 18 months, Facebook's been embroiled in a number of scandals that have provoked the ire of its user base. It's also really pissed off the regulators. And last year, for for example, the company became the centre of a major scandal when it was revealed that 87 million users' data has been illegally obtained by research firm Cambridge Analytica, which was used in the US federal election. Since then, the firms had to contend with a steady stream of similar data privacy issues and breaches. And if Facebook's to make a success of its crypto and convince enough of its current user base to use it, they need to act fast to build trust and change the negative perceptions around Facebook. Yet if any firm can push through mass crypto adoption, it's Facebook. And the good thing, right, good timing right at the moment because there's so much great crypto stuff happening and which reminds me, and I've been saying this now for probably three years or more, if you don't have crypto, if you don't at least have Bitcoin, go out there and get into it. It is really the revolutionary financial change of history. So you need to get into any of the crypto, any of the good cryptos. Um, Ethereum's a good crypto, and um, even if you can only buy a fraction, you know you don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. I mean, people look at Bitcoin; it's about ninety three hundred dollars for a Bitcoin today. You don't have to buy ninety three hundred dollars worth; you can buy three hundred dollars worth and buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. But you certainly should be buying crypto. Now, do you get my th- daily 30-second read business newsletter? We've got about 1.7 or 1.8 million daily subscribers. It's a lot of people. It takes just 30 seconds to read it every day, sometimes a little bit longer. And every day we tackle a different subject. We talk about medicine. We talk about new apps. We talk about entrepreneurs. We talk about new technologies. We talk about um, all sorts of things. We talk about Hyperloop autonomous cars, we talk about blockchain, crypto, we talk about all those things, taxation, 
um, the financial situation in China. I mean, we we discuss everything. And in, if you got today's news, you know, I talked about what was the best investment in today's uncertain political and financial t- climate. And the first last five years or so, I've consistently said cryptocurrency. However, my answer to the question, what is the best investment in today's uncertain political and financial climate, it just might surprise you. But the only way you're going to find out is to go on to my newsletter. So just go to uh, bob at bobpritchard.com, that's P-R-I-T-C-H-A-R-D, and subscribe. takes two seconds and it's really easy. Now, you know, most of us find that making money's hard, but I reckon this is a great story. Now, everybody knows the smiley face, you know, that beaming yellow face with a big smile on it and the big oblong eyes. It's pervaded pop culture since the 1960s. In the 60s, the hippies stuck it onto VWs and screen printed it on tie-dyed T-shirts. And Generation Xs will recall its omnipresence during the 1990s on everything from Joe Boxer underwear to Raver backpacks. But his smile, he seems to have been everywhere for as long as I can remember. And today's no different. The smiley faces on everything from textiles and puzzles and party goods and stationery, automobile accessories, backpack, exercise balls. I saw it the other day on chocolates, toys. They've even got smiley chicken nuggets. It's going a bit far, but they, but they do. This simple icon has retained relevancy through 50 years of cultural movements. So we've had 50 years of Smiley. Now, the Smiley company in England, it's a family-owned brand licensing company that holds the rights to Smiley face symbols in over 100 countries. Now, the one country that it doesn't have the rights is the United States. They had a few huge fight a few years ago, and uh, they lost. Well, the, the company here lost, and the Smiley company doesn't have the rights. But the Smiley company in England is considered one of the top 100 licensing companies in the world. It's got a staff of 40. And listen to this. It's got revenues of over $500 million a year. Now, 1963, how did it all start? 1963, a Massachusetts-based freelance artist named Harvey Ball received a call from a company that needed to lift employee morale. He spent 10 minutes to produce his famous solution, the bright yellow circle with black oval eyes and a smile. For his work, he was paid a one-time fee of $45. And that was modern history's first smiley face. Ball smiley face ushered it into the mainstream American culture. And his simple illustration was worth millions of dollars. But here's the rub. Ball never 
filed a trademark. But in Paris, Franklin Lufrani decided to design a symbol. It's almost identical, but he raced out and got a French trademark. In the 1970s, France was emerging from a countercultural movement where students were rejecting moral structures, embracing free love, a bit like San Francisco, and leaning into a sexual revolution. Lefrani printed 10 million smiley stickers, handed them out free across the country, and the icon was soon plastered everywhere. Lufrani secured a, detail, a, a deal with the candy company Mars, which printed the smiley face on its chocolates. Other big licensees followed, Levi's, Ag for Film, stationery retailers pumped out smiley journals, notebooks, pencils, all sorts of stuff. T-shirts and buttons followed, drive licensing deals with trendy apparel companies. In 1996, licensing deals were down a bit and the logo was fading. So LaFranchi's son formed the Smiley Company and secured trademarks in 100 countries, as I mentioned. And uh, in countries where it was taken, they bought it or they battled the owner, including the famous 10-year battle with Walmart in the US. So he rode the rise of the internet and mobile technology, rode out he, he, rolled out more than 470 Smiley iterations, working with Nutella, Clinique, McDonald's, Nivea, Coca-Cola, Dunkin' Donuts, VW, and a whole bunch more people. So did Lefrani simply take another man's creation and make it popular? Exactly what he did. Harvey Ball... The guy who invented the smiley passed away in 2001 at the age of 79, having only earned $45, while Lufrangi, who pinched it, has a $500 million a year business. Goes to show you, make sure you trademark and patent whatever you've got, because otherwise some bastard will come along and nick it. Today's interview is an interesting one. It's with Pradeep Gol, who is on the 100 Most Promising Entrepreneurs Worldwide that's compiled by Goldman Sachs. He's the CEO at Solve.care, and they use blockchain technology as the underlying distributed ledger for coordinating care, benefits, and, and payments between all parties in the chain of healthcare. And those parties are patients, doctors, pharmacies, laboratories laboratories, employers, insurers and others. And healthcare looks like being the number one issue for tomorrow, for tomorrow, for next year, I wish it was tomorrow, for next year's election. And this interview is a terrific source of knowledge. You know, I've often wondered why the hell we can't make healthcare really simple and why we have to fill in forms every time we go from one doctor to another or from one section of a hospital to another. Here's another form, exactly the same as the last form. And Pradeep answers all those questions. He's a good guy. This is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back with Pradeep in just a moment. Do you want- 
want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Where over the past nine years, we've given you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting business people and their fascinating and exciting initiatives. We talk to the entrepreneurs behind these projects and we talk about the services that they provide. We address the challenges that they may have faced and we try to work out what it is that makes them tick, what makes these entrepreneurs special. The latest figures that I saw from Silicon Valley said that 99% of all startups now fail. So when you speak to one that's succeeding... What is it that they do that the rest of us don't do that makes them successful and others not? Now, Pradeep Gol has spent more than 26 years in healthcare IT, building four healthcare IT companies, and he's been at the top of Inc. 500 fastest growing companies lists multiple times. Pradeep is also on that 100 most promising entrepreneurs worldwide that's compiled by Goldman Sachs. And in 2011, he was appointed by Governor of North Dakota to the Health Information Technology Advisory Committee to help direct statewide health record initiatives for insurers and consumers. It's always amazed me that... um, we can land a man on the moon, but we can't get our healthcare records all in one place, all simple, so that you don't have to go, when you get checked into hospital, for example, you don't have to fill in the same ridiculous form 25 times. And um, from 2012 and to 2017, Pradeep was working with healthcare initiatives of two US presidents to design and build several public program solutions including Medicaid, Medicare, social services, children's health, medical, mental health, and many other programs. He is the CEO at Solve Period Care or Solve.care. The Solve.care program uses blockchain technology as the underlying distributed ledger for coordinating care, benefits, and payments between all parties in the chain of healthcare which are patients, doctors, pharmacies, laboratories, employers, insurers, and others. 
Hi, Pradeep. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're being heard right around the world. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. It, it, it's really... A, Pradeep's in the Ukraine. So in the Ukraine, it's about 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night. So I really appreciate you speaking with me. Um, what problems are Solve.care trying to solve? What are you addressing? Bob, first, I think your statement earlier that it is easier to land man on the moon than to deal with some of the intractable issues of healthcare. That is undeniably true uh, for more reasons than one. Solvecare was is a culmination of really a quarter century of learning and journey where I've had the privilege of working on many sides of healthcare, from an insurance perspective, from a public program perspective, from a regulation perspective, uh, from clinical delivery perspective, and then as a father of a child that needed a lot of needs a lot of healthcare, mm. as a patient in a family perspective, and then you really come down to it, we are trying to address the fundamental realignment and necessary but missing realignment of the interests of the patient and the needs of the physician and the interests of the person who is paying for healthcare, the payer, be it insurance company or the employer or the government, right. um, in the manner that allows really for me to take better care of my kids and to deliver better healthcare to them while having healthcare be sustainable, affordable, and accessible. So it really is about rethinking the way patients, doctors, payers, and other stakeholders work together to a common objective while meeting their objective of quality of care or access to care or cost of care or all of the above. Right. So it's a lessons learned applied to we got to change things, so let's do something differently than the way we've been doing them. What was the what was your main motivation behind establishing Solve.care? Is it building on so the programs you that you've de- developed in your earlier healthcare companies? Or was it a, an extension of those or was it a, a totally different approach? So as you mentioned, um, you know, I've been in healthcare a long time and I've had the privilege and the really good fortune of looking at healthcare from many different angles. And I have built solutions, companies or career in healthcare, solving the, the problems from a payer, from insurance perspective or from a hospital perspective or from an employer perspective or a government perspective. And what I found myself asking the question over the years increasingly is, how can we invest literally hundreds of millions of dollars, sometimes billions of dollars? And when we start, we have this aspiration to engage the patient, make them, give them the right information at the right time, engage the provider, the physician, the reduced cost of care while improving quality of care. And yet we always fall short. So what's the issue? And I came to believe after having built a lot of different technologies and systems that the issue lies in the way we are asking the question of how to engage the patient. Yet another website, yet another app, yet another data warehouse built by an insurance company or by a government agency does little to engage you as a parent or me as a patient. It just is not working. Sure. So self-care is in some ways an essential pivot point. Having done everything that conventional wisdom says we should do, I realized that I did all that well, and yet we didn't make the impact we want. So self-care is 
a response to me saying, we got to do things differently by asking different questions. And the fundamental question we have to ask is, is the patient's interest and the physician's interest and the payer slash check writer's interest truly aligned? And the answer is no. So how do we align them in a manner that is transparent, that is coordinated, that we use the right value to the right parties? Because one wins, the other loses. That's not going to work. We have to achieve a win-win-win model. And so in very simple terms, Solcare is a platform designed to address those three pillars. How do I make the patient more effective at getting well? How do I make the doctor more effective at delivering the care I need to deliver? And how do I most effectively pay for this care and ensure that I'm paying for the right care at the right amount, for the right reasons and for the right amount? That is the realignment we are pursuing uh, with the platform. One of the problems that, well, a few issues that I have with healthcare um, is that you fill out the same forms over and over again, seeking the same information incessantly. I must have filled out one of those healthcare forms. Do you have diabetes? Do you have arthritis? Do you have a pigeon toes? I filled those things out a thousand times in my life. And surely with today's technology, that it's all totally unnecessary, isn't it? Surely, you know, we can, we can come up with a system where everybody is on some form of card or whatever that gets swiped and all your medical history is all in one shot. That's got to be good for the doctor. It's got to be good for the patient. It's got to be good for insurance companies. It's surely got to be good for everybody. Yeah, it is a complex question. I mean, it seems quite simple, but the answer is yes. The answer is we need to get away from the reason you fill out the same information again and again is because you, that information is going to different systems. One system belongs to the insurance company, the other system belongs to the doctor, the third belongs to the hospital, the fourth belongs to the pharmacy, the fifth belongs to your employer, and on and on and on. And every one of them operates as if they are the center of the universe. And therefore, you have to circulate your world around them, that system. So to them, there is no memory of what you did in another system. There is no coordination. And for many years, we've been pursuing this idea of interoperability where someday in the distant future, all these systems will talk to each other and therefore we'll have this perfectly interoperable, integrated universe where data will flow. The problem is technologically you could do it, but business interests don't allow it. So what we need to do is to move the data out of the system in the hands of the patient and make it portable so that you can give it to the doctor without having to enter it into yet another form, yet another EMR or whatever. Right. electronic medical record system. So exactly, empowering the patient has to be more than saying to the patient, get smarter, work harder, be intelligent, or you know, be superhuman because healthcare demands that of you. Empowering the patient means giving them the tools that they can actually use to control their information and deliver it to the right party with the right consent for the right reason, for the right duration. So in many ways, you have to get away from the back-end system model where insurance company systems don't talk to doctor systems, don't talk to hospital systems, the person that needs to have that information in their hand is the patient. Yes. So if we use the current technology, which is better than you know, a few years ago, um, certainly we have seen some advances in technology that allow me to, to put information in the hands of the patient like never before. And the, I'm not just talking about mobile phones, which are certainly very helpful. I'm talking about a secure controlled, transparent information delivery network that I can 
join, publish, and consume information from. Sure. Which, um, you know, I am a big fan of um, blockchain uh, and cryptocurrencies for that matter, but I'm a big, big fan of blockchain. And this is where I think blockchain can play an extraordinary role because there's, um, it's, it's accessible, it can't be changed, so everybody be, can be very confident that the information that they're getting has not been tampered with or there's been no mistakes or whatever. So what sort of a role do you see blockchain playing in healthcare? So blockchain as a technology is very promising, but it's obviously not panacea. It will solve some very important issues but it will not solve all. Having said that, in healthcare, an appropriate use of blockchain that we have zeroed in on is using it as a distributed ledger that allows coordination between doctor, patient, employer, insurer, government, where we can coordinate benefits, meaning what plan, insurance plan I have, what are my rights under the plan, uh, what benefits I receive, based annual wellness exam or a discount pharmacy product or the rights to see a specialist without a referral, those are my benefits. And if I can coordinate them on a chain that allows my doctor, my specialist, my insurance company to be in sync, I as a patient don't have to deal with all the bureaucracy anymore. I'm going to publish my need and I'm going to let the chain participants respond to my need, be it for making an appointment, be it for filling a prescription, be it for getting a referral to see a specialist, be it to report my symptoms after I went home, uh, after a surgery at the hospital, be it to uh, to take care of my family members who are the patients and I have to coordinate their care. That coordination on a common fabric is a far, far, far better model than today where we have emails and, you know, as you mentioned, you know, sure. uh, a million copies of the same form floating around. So yep. that's one elegant use of blockchain. The other elegant use of blockchain is monitoring and measuring the quality of care I'm getting and measuring it in a transparent way so that I am getting the care I need. My quality of my care isn't a hope and a prayer, but it, ha- it can be measured against the quality of care being given to other people by other doctors. So I can create this measures and metrics where my identity can be kept completely private, but my ability to see whether I'm being given the best possible care, is a care protocol being followed? Let's say I have diabetes. Am I being treated according to the American Diabetes Association guidelines or am I not? Those things become transparent at the right level of transparency without me having to compromise my relationship with my doctor or my identity. And on the third side is somebody needs to get paid. When you go get care, somebody's going to pay the doctor. So that payment is today very complex. It's multi-part, multi-day, multi-week journey. And the doctor can wait from the day he sees you as a patient to the day I pay him as an insurance company, 90 days, 180 days. Now, nowhere else in the world can you go to a store, buy a sweater, wear it for 180 days, and then decide you're going to pay. Right. Uh, it's, but healthcare works like that because of the, the third-party payment nature of healthcare by definition. Uh, because most payments in healthcare are not made by the patient. They're made by somebody on behalf of the patient. Sure. So that makes it a very complex third-party payment model, and that is very cumbersome, very much susceptible to abuse on both sides. Uh, I can unfairly deny payment, and you can unfairly bill me, and it's going to be very hard to reconcile. So this is, these are the issues that healthcare is unique about. When people say, health, you know, it can be rocket science, 
I answer it's worse because the way the relationships are structured, yeah. it is very, very, people are at odds with each other all the time. And the whole objective of using blockchain effectively is to coordinate benefits, coordinate care, and coordinate payments. And if we can address any one of these three things effectively, we would have made a huge change in healthcare. I think the opportunity is to, to change all three. The, you mentioned cost of healthcare. Um, I know this is probably outside your purview, but why does it cost? Why does somewhere like Australia, for example, have um, healthcare that costs the where you can treat? Everything and the government pays for it. Doesn't matter what it is, the government pays for it. And yet, it only costs twenty five hundred dollars a year per head. Yet in the United States, it's eighty five hundred dollars a year per head. Why does it cost three times more for healthcare here than it does in somewhere like Australia? Is that simply because in Australia you've got one payer and maybe two healthcare companies, where over here you've got a plethora of um, insurers and healthcare providers, and it's just everybody's got to take their bit of a dollar along the way. Um, I mean, this is a this is a complex issue, and there are lots of opinions about this. But at the end of the day, I'll make one comment that I think might help some, shed some light on this. The pair, ultimately, whoever that might be, single pair or multi pair, or you know, um, and US has, of course many different types of pairs, government, sure. commercial insurance, employers, um, they're all pairs in the context of healthcare. Um, the, the issue is that pair is not actually the one who's driving costs. They're the ones who are trying to contain cost. So they're the ones writing the check. So in the end, you're not the, uh, if you are the one responsible for writing the check, you're not going to be anxious to drive the cost up. Okay. The issue here is more about utilization. The fundamental question here is, uh, and one CEO from one of the major insurance companies put it beautifully many years ago. I heard him speak and I agreed with him. He said, when we get sick, we have an expectation of unlimited care. Whatever can be done will be done to make me well, regardless of cost. Right. But the fact is that regardless of cost is an expectation. It's not deliverable. You cannot say every single situation demands unlimited care and unlimited intervention. So our challenge, both in the U.S. and really globally, it's not just the U.S., is that our expectations and our consumption of healthcare is growing at a speed that is far exceeding the overall economic model. Whether it's an insurance model, the premiums can keep up because the cost of insurance will grow to so high that people can't afford it. Yep. So you are trying to drive down cost of care, and but you can't deny people care. So it's a very fine balance between driving utilization and the cost of utilization down without impacting people's lives. I wouldn't want somebody to tell me my son can go see a neurologist, but it's too expensive. But, uh, but the fact of the matter is that if every single scenario, he ends up with a neurologist instead of a primary care or pediatrician, the cost would be astronomical. So we have to find this balance between the patient has the tools to make the right decisions and is able to utilize to the right level the right services and we have the tools to measure whether the services being delivered are actually making a difference or are they just being delivered because of reasons such as uh, avoidance of risk or or a desire to get maximum treatment or or whatever desire to make profit so we have to 
that's the driver. So in U.S., where most everything is unregulated, the, the economic model of utilization is driving the cost. Now, that's demographic. We have people who are aging. We have high incidence of lifestyle diseases. We have high incidence of metabolic diseases. We have high incidence of, uh, 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 of issues that are chronic and multi-chronic. And then for that, each of those episodes, the cost of care is rising because we are expecting the highest quality care and regardless of cost. Well, the cost eventually adds up. And who pays for it? The society does. So it's not a simple thing. I don't think personally that I am the qualified to answer whether a single payer will actually reduce cost because we do have a semi-single payer model with Medicare, which ensures all elderly people in the United States, right? If you're over 65, you belong in Medicare. You also have a very big single payer called Medicaid, which is all the poor people below federal poverty limit at certain ratio. You fall in that. And then everybody in between is sort of like insurance model of commercial insurance, employer insurance. So in many ways, we have already bifurcated the country into on the left side, the poor, on the right side, the elderly, and in between the working population that buys insurance and insurance companies. And I don't see really any empirical data that the cost of Medicare is significantly lower than commercial insurance model. And again, it's all driven by utilization. So long story short, I think what we have focused on and we must focus on is aligning the availability of care to the necessity of care to the right care to the, at the right level. And then we can talk about reducing cost. Otherwise, playing with one payer writing the check or five payers writing the check is not going to drive down cost uh, and utilization overnight. Uh, but then other people who will argue that, well, but fundamentally the issue remains. We got to empower the patient and the doctor and the pair to realign their interests. So we are all marching towards getting well at the lowest cost possible. Uh, and that I think is the, really the answer. Not simple, but that's the answer. I have trouble. I have trouble with that uh, in that Australia's got great health care. There's no limit on, you know, if you go there with, go to the doctor with some dreadful disease, they're not going to say it's too expensive. We're not going to treat you. They will treat you. So they're getting just as much care and as they do in America. Um, and yet, and Australians live five years longer than Americans and yet they pay a third of the healthcare costs. What, have we just got a dreadful diet here or what the hell is it that makes us everything so expensive? I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not fully qualified to answer this question because many yeah. health economists are banging their head against this every day trying to figure out the driver. But to, what I can say is that we clearly, in a cost per procedure or cost per visit or a cost per prescription, America pays a lot more. Yeah. for the same visit, for the same service, for the same transaction as anywhere else. And it's because we, we allow capital markets to set the price yeah. uh, of these services. And in that, you're going to always have a certain degree of fixed and fixed costs and a certain degree of profit, profit making, a certain degree of R&D budget. So uh, the, the issue here is that definitely things cost more in the U.S. There is no doubt about it. And that's the, the result of a very complex ecosystem, which is a combination of government and commercial insurance, uh, which then ultimately is bearing, driving the, uh, the, uh, the payment, 
and the utilization is driven by people's expectations and, and the cost of care. So there is no question, facts tell us that cost of care in US for same procedure, apples to apples, is significantly higher than, than any other G20 country. Yeah. Uh, but it's driven by our economic model more than anything else. Right. Okay. So one thing I, I really like about Sol is you've issued tokens which can be used to secure efficient and transparent healthcare. Um, how does that work in practicality? Uh, the, the idea of tokens, I think, is fantastic and, and is going to make a huge difference to how, how businesses are financed and, and how we pay for things and it's going to make a huge difference. How does it work with you guys? So at the very fundamental level, a token is programmable money. Yep. And if we can program the money to be intelligent, and ask the question, why am I going from wallet A to wallet B? And is the right amount going from wallet A to wallet B? Meaning, is this the right service and the right reason for the right amount? We can eliminate so much of the back-end bureaucracy and administrative effort and fraud and waste and abuse and even overutilization. So the objective is very simple and elegant to describe. The token is programmable to be intelligent around the context of care. So when we pay somebody, whether patient pays a doctor or insurance company pays a doctor or the doctor pays a specialist, whatever the payment model is, a programmable currency is fundamentally more able to detect and prevent overpayment, underpayment, um, prepayment, or, and, you know, and reconcile itself. So that's the fundamental premise behind enabling the patient to pay the doctor with tokens which allows me, the, the check writer, to A, facilitate much quicker transaction between doctor and patient. Yes. Second, keeping track of what they, who paid how much whom, how much I need to pay, how much Maria needed to pay. All those things become much more transparent and auditable and reduce the friction of payment. You don't have to wait for a check to be in the mail or, or an EFT to be issued. You don't have to aggregate payments you know, twice a month and wait for your check to come in. Sure. You can do things much more real time. And then if something is wrong, there is absolute proof of what happened so you can reconcile and adjust as necessary. And also so at much less cost. And it reduces cost for everyone. Yeah. Right? Yep. Because great you idea. can avoid... Absolutely. So that's one thing. The second part of the token is that I can delegate payment. I can give my member... Let's say I'm an insurance company. Yep. And I have one million members, and those members are going to go get care as they should. A normal scenario is that we go to the doctor, the doctor will send me a bill, I'll review the bill, I'll try to verify that they really deliver the service. Then the doctor, you know, um, uh, then I send the check to them based on what I think they should have gotten paid. Then they appeal the claim because they feel I didn't pay them enough. This is a long journey, and yep. everybody's orthogonal to each other. Why don't I give the patient the token? And I say to the patient, my member, when you go see any doctor in my network, you can pay them using my token. Because I stand behind it. This right. is my token. I stand behind it. The same way as American Express stands behind their reward points. Right. Or Delta stands behind their SkyMile. Except this token is a payment token. You can give it to the doctor when you leave the office. I may have a fixed price on the token based on the fact that this is a primary care visit. So GP should charge you $75. And the token is going to be worth 75 because of the fact that you, you went to a primary care physician for a primary care visit, or I may program the token to query me and say, okay, Pradeep went to see the, uh, the, the doctor. This turned out to be a specialty care visit. This is the procedure code. How much should the token be worth? 
I can do that all real time. So my point being that we can take this very complicated and very inefficient and expensive way to make payments in healthcare and truly simplify it so that people will ask the question in a few years, how the heck did we do it before? Yeah. Because what we do today is just too complex, inefficient, prone to fraud, and very expensive. So it's one way to look at the token. The other way to look at the token is to reward the patient to do certain things and make the token more valuable. If you get your annual exam done, if you take your prescriptions on time, if you do your, um, get your uh, blood sugar level under control and keep it under control, here is what will happen in your wallet. So we can reward behavior and we can also measure uh, to some degree how the patients respond to these incentives. So, but the fundamental value here coming back to is we want to make sure that whoever is delivering care is getting paid as quickly as possible, accurately and auditable. So that's the reason why programmable money makes sense in healthcare because of the multi-party payment model, because of the complexity of determining the right value of care and assigning the right price to care. These are not simple questions that often require multiple systems to interact. Let's not do this anymore. It's too complex and it's too inefficient. Let's bring, let's see if a programmable money can take away most of the pain, if not all of it. I think it's an absolutely brilliant idea. I just have a question. <laughs> um, you mentioned that the token has fixed cost. Now, the token supply is fixed, um, and I think the price is currently about 30 cents, right? So how's the, how's the price fixed? Isn't the price going to vary depending on availability and demand? Or if the That's supp- a great question. If the supply is fixed, how do you, how do, you do that? Yeah, it is a great question, and um, the the answer is a little complex, but I'll try to simplify it. Okay. Um, So the token can have two states. Uh, It can have a state when it is variable, when it it is actually floating in value. Yes. But there is a point in time when the token enters the care network, and it achieves stable state. So once the token enters the network, the entry price gets attached to the token, and it's fixed. So if I, as an insurance company, bought tokens in the market and I gave them to my members, that token is no longer variable. The moment I put those tokens in the network, those tokens are locked in price. As long as they're circulating in the network between my wallet, patient wallet, doctor wallet, pharmacy wallet, they are fixed. The final redeemer, the final wallet that ultimately redeems the token is the one who is going to sell it back in the market at the current price. Now, obviously, there's a delta and there's a variation. There's a risk involved. And there are some advanced models designed around who bears the risk of that variability. But, uh, and that is the configuration of the care network, depending on if you're an insurance company or a government agency or an employer or a patient or a pharmaceutical company, uh, different parties will bear that risk and do bear that risk. But the point is, token has a variable state, kind of like a waveform. When it hits the network, it becomes solid matter doesn't change. When it exits the network, it can hit the waveform again. So it's, it's that variability that allows us to program the token to behave in very unique ways. Now, you can also issue a fixed price token which never changes in price, ever. Right. And that's called a stable coin. You can do that. Yes. That's the second option. But more and more of our clients are more interested in the first option because it allows for them to essentially allow 
the member, the patient or the consumer who's hand, who has the wallet in their hand to be able to derive value from the token, not just within one network, which I might be sponsoring, but in any other network that you might be sponsoring or somebody else might be sponsoring. So it creates a much glo bigger global ecosystem. Uh, but if you just wanted to have a single network and not worry about anything else, you could just lock the price of the token in the network and it would never change. A great idea. We're running a bit short of time, but ha where are you intending to take SolveCare in the next couple of years? So we have a very clear vision. We want to address these very human intractable problems that I face as a parent, that we all face for our parents or we are going to face sooner or later for ourselves in terms of the patient provider payer relationship and administrative clinical and financial coordination. So in that regard, whether we are in US or in Australia, whether we are addressing problems in developing countries or, or developed G20, those fundamental issues aren't that different surprisingly. And our vision and our goal and our plan is to bring solve care to different markets with different set of use cases on that core premise of coordination of benefits, coordination of care, coordination of payments. Regardless of who's writing the check and regardless of who is the single risk bearer, whether it's one payer or multi-payer, doesn't matter. Those issues are still the same. You still got to get to the doctor. You still got to make sure that you're getting the right care. You still got to pay for it. And you still got to make sure that there is coordination of care around your friends, family members, specialists, therapists, and so on. So we believe that our value proposition as we bring it to different continents is clearly being articulated and understood by our clients. And that's showing up in our pipeline and, and interest around the world. So where we see in two years is really to have a presence in practically every major economy in the world from a, uh, from a solution perspective. And then ultimately we would like to, to make sure that the company has reached a scale and, and size where we can properly serve healthcare in one way, shape or form uh, in basically every major healthcare system that exists. Pradeep, I think it is a fantastic idea. I love it. And I thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, cons particularly considering you're on the other side of the world and it's evening. I do really do appreciate that. So contact Pradeep and find out more about solve.care. Simply go to solve.care. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show. Coming at you on Voice America Business Network, and we're broadcasting today across the world from our studios on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, in Los Angeles, California. Neil Morgan's a colleague of mine who's working with our friend Ken Cragen, and he was the guy who conceived and organized projects such as We Are the World, Hands Across America. You did parts of Live Aid, and we're working on a spectacular new project called Hands Around Our World, and uh, 
Neil reminded me of an old audio tape from the 80s from Tony Robbins. Now, hearing it again, I thought it was very insightful for these economic times. So here are some of the key points. You know, we all have our tragedies, some worse than others, but it's how we deal with these tragedies that matter. And by managing these five key emotions, it'll assist you in achieving wealth and happiness. Firstly, you must learn how to manage frustration. Frustration is one of the greatest silent killers of dreams on the planet. And you've got to learn to handle it, how to use it, and how to break through it. Now, frustration is what stops people. And more importantly, it turns a positive attitude into a negative one. And once you've got a negative attitude, you're dead. A negative attitude takes away the desire to make you do what you do and do what's necessary to get something done. Change your attitude, change your state of mind and look at it from a different angle. People say that if you get more success, you will get less frustration. Well, that's rubbish. So if you can learn to manage frustration and control that emotion, well, you're well and truly on your way. Secondly, you must learn how to manage rejection. This is the second biggest killer of dreams. And no matter what you want in life, you're going to get rejection. I bet you didn't know that Sylvester Stallone was turned down over a thousand times for his Rocky script. Sometimes, many times, by the same agent. People said he looked stupid, sounded stupid, but Stallone didn't give up. It's a numbers game. People that learn how to manage frustration and rejection are in the minority in our culture, and they're the ones that succeed. Thirdly, you must learn how to handle financial pressure. Financial pressure hits all of us, and it can weigh on you and create enormous emotional stress. But the more you earn, the more you tend to spend. Ain't that the truth? Don't let money be your master. You need to master money. Relationships break down because of it. Friendships break down because of it. All sorts of things go wrong because of money. But it's simple. If you change your thinking processes and focus not on what you get, but what on what you can give, money will flow and pressure will ease. Point number four, you must learn how to manage complacency. You may be doing well, but you cannot live in your comfort zone. Things change. The world changes. You have to continue to grow. Don't get too comfortable. Get comfortable. It's a killer. Learn to judge yourself by your goals and not by your peers. Pay careful attention with who you associate with because the people you associate with are critical in playing a major role in what you're willing to accept. Don't let negative people infect your mind. Put yourself in a position to grow. Number five, always give much more than you expect to receive. This is the formula for wealth and happiness. Really works. The secret to living is giving. Put simply, if you focus on selling, you'll do okay. But if you focus on how to change lives through your work and the things you do on a daily basis, 
and give people the emotions they want through your personal product and self, then you will become wealthy. Don't forget, next week is my 400th show. So there's been a hell of a lot of effort going into 400 shows. So I want to make sure that you're listening next week. We'll have some surprises. Don't know what the hell they are yet, but we'll have some surprises. We might give away a few things. Anything could happen. And remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. And if you're always trying to be normal, you will always be boring. And there's nothing worse than boring people. But if you go and kick the world around, bite off more than you can chew, chew like hell, you'll never know how amazing you can be. So I hope you're going to join me again next Tuesday for the 400th show. It's a big milestone for me. In the meanwhile, have a great week. Continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.